Welcome to episode 345 with my guest, Matt Shepard. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. And as I like to say, I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and that has to count for something. Um, welcome to anybody who has found us through iTunes. Uh, we're featured in their new and noteworthy, uh, section this, uh, this week. So very excited about that. Um, I want to, <laughs> as I've shared with a lot of you guys, uh, that, that listen every week, I'm in the process of moving and, um, I, so I went to the to get the keys to the new apartment uh, today, and I it's a really tiny apartment I'm moving into. It's 700 square feet, and I didn't know if the headboard for my bed is going to fit in there. So I uh, grabbed a measuring tape, measured my headboard, headed over to uh, get the keys to the new apartment. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, I got to swing by the, the, the house and uh, let Ivy out. And uh, my ex-wife likes to grow vegetables. And she always tells me, you know, take whatever you want. So uh, there were some great uh, green beans and, and zucchinis and big fucking yellow zucchinis. And uh, or is it a squash? I don't know. I get big vegetable. And um, squash? Yeah, a squash. <laughs> Did a fucking cooking show. I swear to God, I think it's a yellow zucchini because it, it's not a crookneck squash. Anyway, um, so I go over to uh, the new apartment and I don't really want to start moving anything in yet. So I'm sitting down and I'm filling these forms out and this woman just kind of keeps looking at what I have in my hand and I realize I've shown up for my new apartment with a measuring tape and a giant zucchini (laughs) and nothing else. (laughs) At that point, when I realized that, I should have just gone all in and just said, hey, are the apartments pretty soundproof? (laughs) Is there like an area that's most comfortable to lay down just on my back on the floor? Maybe where there's a mirror. Um, I want to remind you guys that uh, LA PodFest is fast approaching. As I told you, uh, Grace uh, was the winner of the uh, raffle for uh, the monthly donor free hotel and uh, weekend pass to LA PodFest. But if you want more details about it, go to LAPodFest.com. And I think uh, it's... October 6th, 7th, and 8th, and I think I'm recording the night of the 6th. That's a Friday night, and my guest is going to be Andy Kendler. Can't wait for that. Uh, I want to read you guys a... Um, do I want to read this one right now? Um, yeah, I want to read this one. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Anxiety Cucumber. And uh, she writes, I had a happy moment yesterday that I wanted to share because this podcast had a definite hand in it. In the last several months, I've dreaded going to my therapist, not because she's awful, but because I'd hit a point where I'd run out of things to discuss that I was comfortable discussing with her. 
I'd kept going because I'd been seeing her for years. The longest I'd ever seen a therapist, I don't think I've ever made it past six months before, and because my insurance is really good for mental health and not going felt wasteful. Listening to you talk about how important compatibility is with therapists and how a good therapist will understand, I worked up the courage to tell her that I needed to be done. She responded really well, told me how far I'd come and that she agreed that I was in a good place to move on. She offered her services in the future if I ever wanted to come in as needed or to recommend other therapists if there were specific things I wanted to work on. I felt so much relief. I stayed for the rest of the appointment and we talked a bit about some things coming up in my future. And when I walked out the door, I almost cried from the pressure release. I feel so much better now. The best part was standing up for myself and my needs, even though I was scared. I love reading that. Um, I had to go through that too with a therapist uh, years ago. And um, I was so nervous about uh, doing that. And uh, it was it was not a big deal. It's it's weird. It's almost never as bad in our head as uh, our, our crystal ball uh, predicts it. Um, and uh, speaking of uh, therapy, as I've mentioned many times, uh, BetterHelp.com is a sponsor of this show. Uh, I love it. I use it. I love my BetterHelp.com therapist. Her name's Donna. I've been with her for a year. We talk every Friday, uh, um, uh, video to video, and um, I've been I've been really uh, gaining a lot of insights, and I feel extremely comfortable with her. I've shared uh, really all the nitty gritty. Um, there's really nothing that I've held back. Uh, sharing with her and the thing that I like is when you find a therapist you're comfortable with um, and you can share everything then they can really help you because they have all the all the the information they need because they want to help you and uh, so I recommend betterhelp.com go to betterhelp.com slash mental um, Fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And uh, you need to be over 18. And we'll put a link to that, as we always do on the show uh, episode notes, show notes for this for this episode. Um, and then I want to uh, just read a couple of quick struggle and the sentences. We haven't we haven't done these uh, read from this survey in uh, in a long time, and we will get back to it. But I just for some reason needed a little break from it. Uh, this was filled out by Shithole Hoosier, and uh, she she's uh, straight and in her thirties, and she writes about her codependency, static sheet from the dryer that is stuck on my favorite dress. God, that is so fucking good. Um, this is the same survey filled out by Julianne. She's a teenager and uh, she's straight. And about her OCD, she writes, Listening to the podcast at three volume blips on my Mac would be perfect, but my OCD won't allow it, so it's always too loud or too quiet. It's fucking wonderfully horrible. Uh, awfulsome, as we would say on the podcast. And then uh, Nevin uh, he is straight and in his 20s. Uh, about his depression, he writes, major depressive disorder, like an anchor that doesn't take me deep enough to drown. About his anxiety, a bucket of ice dumped into my lungs. And then a snapshot from his life that highlights his issues. 
It took me seven years to realize I was in love with a pedophile and three glasses of wine to make me accept it. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting, different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with Matt Shepard, who is a friend from a uh, support group of mine, and uh, we've known each other for probably two years, maybe, mm-hmm. and um, I wanted to have you on the podcast because uh, you're somebody who is such a great example of a, a man um, being able to be vulnerable and kind of speak his own truth, and um, I... I was telling Matt before we came in here to record, um, in the recovery community, uh, sometimes you'll have a meeting where there is a speaker for that day. And that person will usually, for anywhere from 10 minutes to 45 minutes, uh, do what is called a pitch, where they share um, their experience with whatever issue the, the um, support group is focused on and so they'll talk about what their life was like before recovery what happened to change them and what their life is like now in recovery and i would like to try to give the listener an experience of what it is like hearing somebody um give a pitch so i would like to although i may ask a question here or two in there i would like um I've asked Matt to um, share, as if he were sharing in a in our support group. Uh, and you're in a couple of dis- different support groups, so you're going to touch on a couple of different topics, food and intimacy struggles. Yep. I'll okay. talk about all of them. Yes. Um, so uh, anything you'd like to say before you, you kick it off? Um. Just that it's just nice. I'm a beacon of uh, mental health, so that's what got me in here. So that's kind of exciting. <laughs> I get the feeling you're being sarcastic. Just a little, but it's it's all something to be grateful for. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. My name is Matt Shepard. And today I'm going to tell you about my story being a man in recovery from an eating disorder, from binge eating disorder, being in recovery from morbid obesity. My top weight was 340 pounds and I've lost over 160 pounds. Today I'm going to tell you my story about my struggles with sex and love addiction, particularly with a struggle of pornography, the difficulty with being able to open up and be vulnerable and connect with other people, 
And I'm also going to touch on growing up around mental illness and alcoholism. And in my case, also being a survivor of suicide and what that looks like in my life, having lost someone to suicide. So I'm from Virginia. I'm 33 years old. My story of recovery started 10 years ago. But I grew up in Virginia, Southern Virginia. My dad is a minister, and he's also an alcoholic. He's someone who got into recovery, struggled to work the program, but never drank again. And I got to experience an upbringing where we were all willing and trying to work on ourselves the best we could, but also because of my dad's job, there was always this need to quell it or not talk about it because we live in this world and this society, especially like where I'm from, you know, my dad was a minister and we had to behave a certain way and we had to be a certain way. And so we just couldn't talk about it. We just couldn't show publicly who we really were. And so I grew up learning really young, like how to stuff the truth and to not talk about the truth or to own it just enough so that it wouldn't upset someone else. And for me, the way that I dealt with that, I chose food. Some other members of my family chose drugs or alcohol or prescription medications, or my mom would try to control everyone else as her form of drug. And for me, I chose food. And I remember even at a young age, my mom told me not to eat that cake that she was saving, but instead, uh, this is as early as like nine years old, I remember taking a piece of that cake and running upstairs, and then I heard my mom, and I went and I hid it behind the toilet, because I didn't want her to find it, and she found it, and <laughs> she brought it to me, and she's like, Matt, like, what is this? And, I, and all I could do is just tell her, like, I don't know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. So even at a young age, like I knew how to use food to stuff my feelings. Literally, it was a stuffing of everything. And the only time I ever really spoke up for myself or said anything was when I couldn't hold it down anymore. And so I never really articulated how I felt or what I needed because it would just come out as rampage and yelling and screaming. And so even in a family of five, being the middle kid, I, even though I did okay in school and I was still, I still felt like I was the troublemaker in my family because I was, I could be loud when I felt like I needed something, but I never was really saying anything at all. And so I used food and I used food. And even by like 10th grade, I was morbidly obese. And then I realized like, I didn't want to be that way anymore. Like I wanted to be an actor and I was pursuing acting and I started with a personal trainer. I got put on a really rigid food plan and I just wanted to eat less and less. So here I was morbidly obese and now I'm restricting food and then I'm exercising three hours a day before school or after school. And then if I ate something I wasn't supposed to eat, I was chewing and spitting food out. So I would chew it for the taste and I would spit it out so that I didn't have to own it and own the calories. Nobody knew I was doing this. And everyone who saw me losing weight and everyone who saw me in the gym, they're like, that's amazing. Like, look at you. You're like, you're taking control of your life. And the irony is all the billboards and all of the commercials, they all tell you how to lose the weight, but none of them tell you how to maintain it. <laughs> and I remember going away for summer vacation between 10th and 11th grade. And I came back and I was thin and I was this hot guy in school and all the girls wanted to date me. And I got all that attention I ever wanted. And the first girl that approached me, 
I got into a relationship with her. And the amazing thing is I was in an insanity that no one saw going on, which was that I continued to try to exercise to keep my weight down. And then I started to eat foods I shouldn't be eating anymore. And I got a job at a bakery. And why I was working <laughs> in a bakery, I don't know. And that's where my binging started again. And I would take the day old bread loaves and I, after work, I would try to go to the gym and I would sit in the car and I would binge on an entire loaf of bread. And then I would say, I'm going to go in there and work out. And I started to gain the weight back. And at the same time, like my family was moving through issues. My brother, my younger brother, who's two years younger than me, Andrew, he had gotten drunk when he was about 15 or 16 to the point where like they found him on the side of the street and he thought that he had been hit by a car, but he had fallen off his bike and he had messed his face up so much. Like they thought he was like, he, they thought he got hit by a car, but he wasn't, he was just drunk. He was so drunk and he got severe alcohol poisoning. So between the introduction of alcohol into his life and then the introduction of like puberty, it hit him hard and that was the start of numerous trips to the hospital for my brother and having a hard time in school. And I was in the process of applying to college and thank God I got to have this beautiful relationship with this woman that I had for two years. You know, I got to have that typical beautiful high school relationship that not everyone gets to have. I got voted most dramatic senior superlative, <laughs> which I'd like to say is because I'm amazing actor but i i think i was just a little dramatic but even amongst all that craziness there were good things that happened and good things that i look back on as guiding forces in my life that have allowed me to get to this point but even in that picture in the yearbook of my senior superlative i had started gaining the weight back and so i hid behind a curtain and just poked my head out hi most dramatics <laughs> behind a curtain And then I was applying for college. And when I went off to college, my girlfriend and I had broken up because she was just at a year left of high school. And I don't remember the last four, the, the next four years of college. I remember binging every day. I remember going to class and eating, going to class and binging. I remember I always wanted a girlfriend. I remember being 340 pounds and thinking that no woman would ever love me, that no one would ever want to be with me. And it was also around this time, actually, it was around this time that I reintroduced myself to pornography because I was, I had found at a really young age, as early as third grade pornography because even in third grade, I knew that I was fat and I felt like I didn't look the way other guys did. And I, I wanted to know what was I supposed to look like? And I could easily say that as early as third grade, I started to become addicted to pornography and no one knew. No one ever knew. And it was a daily thing. And it was something that was hidden every day. 
And the saddest thing about mental illness and the saddest thing about shame is that it's stuff that we do when we're alone and we're too scared to bring anyone into it because we make it, we, we act as if it's, it's not okay to have these problems. And so then the problems just become bigger and bigger and more hidden and it fed the porn addiction fed my food addiction because it was all about shame and hiding and how I just wasn't right. I wasn't in the right body. No one wanted me. It was all about how I wasn't right. In my four years of college, I graduated. I got a degree in film and media arts. I wanted to major in theater, but I didn't because I was fat. So I majored in film. And again, looking back on it now, I see where like there was so much more purpose in me majoring in film. And I'm capable of doing so much more now than if I just majored in acting. And these are all things that I didn't understand at the time. After college, I knew that I wanted to live in LA. I knew that I wanted to pursue my dreams. And when I moved here to LA, I bought a one-way plane ticket. I was helping my school out with an internship program they had. So I had free housing. So here I was, I moved to LA, one-way plane ticket, 340 pounds, and I'm trying to get a job in the entertainment industry. I remember going at a job at a really high-end management company out here. And I went into the interview and here I was binging at all these places between every job interview, knowing my free housing was going to end. And I sat in this job interview and I knew I was hitting a bottom because I said, I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, we look at food and we don't think that it's a, an addiction and we don't think that the bottoms can be as bad or it's so easy when you see someone who's morbidly obese and, and think like, why can't they do it right? Or why can't they self will it? Or I didn't get the gastric bypass because I knew there was something else going on. And I knew that at some point in my life, I was going to have to deal with it. And the one thing that I've known about, if there's one thing that I know about my life, it's that there's things that I've always known and that I'll be in the middle of my pain and know that I'm not ready to deal with it yet, but always having that knowing that there will be a point in my life when it will be dealt with and it will find its place and that healing is possible. And the start of real recovery in my life was moving out to LA and almost being homeless and knowing that the only amount of money I had left that I was using it on food to binge. I had a rental car, then my free housing ended and I had a hotel room. I was having feelings for the first time. Because I couldn't stop them. I was so scared of like, where was I going to go and what was I going to do? And I knew that I could not go live at home after graduating college. I could not go live at home. 
I finally reached a point where like I couldn't stop the feelings with the food. The binging no longer gave me a high. I reached a point where like I would have rather cut my arm and like physically feel the pain than deal with the feelings that I was having. And the truth was, was I had numbed myself out so much in my life that I never was really having feel. I was never really allowing myself to express my feelings. I never knew how to have feelings. And the irony is when we get into recovery, life gets so messy because we're having feelings for the first time and we don't know how to deal with them. And we hurt ourselves and we hurt other people because we're emotional and we don't know how to, we don't have the muscle yet to discuss ourselves to discuss our feelings and our emotions and it's messy and in my bottom i found a recovery community i found people who understood what it was like to have what i had and the one thing that i needed to hear that i was told was that i don't have to know how to do it all anymore my whole life had been about How am I going to do this? That's the sad thing about mental illness is because it comes from inside our own head, we think that we're supposed to know how to fix it. And I don't think that I'm a broken person. But one thing they told me One of my mentors, he said to me, he goes, you can't fix a broken mind with a broken brain. And it was the start of me knowing that I needed other people. But more importantly, I needed the experiences of other people to help me. It was me being willing to own the fact that I had an eating disorder. And to know that regardless of what any fucking billboard said that I should be able to do this and that I should be able to manage this that like I just couldn't anymore I was so desperate that I was willing to let go of all of that it was the first time in my life that the only thing I could do is just say that I just don't know anymore and that I'm tired of knowing how to do everything and through that I was willing to to trust the experiences of other people who have come before me. And I sit here with such gratitude to be living at a healthy body weight, to have abstained from compulsive overeating and binging for 10 years. And even 10 years into eating disorder recovery, I still look in the mirror and have days where I don't know what I look like. And that's the thing. It's like over 10 million men will suffer with a significant eating disorder. And binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder and no one talks about it. And very few men are out there vocalizing it. So even in my recovery, I spent a lot of years feeling really alone. For me, mental health recovery is so much not about... We use the word recovery as if we're recovering into something that once was. 
but really what we're doing is discovering who we really are. Because what I've learned is that I never got to actually be who I really was. I was 340 pounds. And now I look in the mirror and it's like, this is who you are. And then I forget that I'm not my body, but that I'm my heart, I'm my mind, I'm my thoughts, I'm my feelings. And it's a process. I was in a relationship when I found recovery and I was with that person for over six years and we just weren't right for each other, but I didn't know how to leave. I don't know if she knew how to leave either. And I learned too that I lost the weight, but I still felt scared. And so to have the weight of someone else in your life, it was just as much a protection as much as the weight was. So I did what most people in LA do. I got married and divorced <laughs> a year and a half later. <laughs> and it was painful. And then I, here I was single for the first time at a healthy body weight. And I didn't know what to do with myself. And I was getting attention from women. I was flirting. However, I was too scared to go out there and just have like sex. Like I, that's not what I could do. I had body image issues. I have some loose skin on my body and I was scared as much as I wanted to go out there and like have sex with every woman that I never had sex with and make up for all that lost time, I was scared. And so I got into another relationship. We didn't really know each other very well, but our histories were very similar. Our traumas. It was easy to bond over that. But the truth is, is I was looking for someone to save me. I was looking for someone to protect me. I was looking for someone to let me know that I was enough. Because what I learned is that even in recovery, I never had built a muscle in my heart that could tell me that I was enough. And God, I could, I could read those self-help books, man. I could go to those therapists. I could read a self-help book, but God, like something was missing. And so here I was in a relationship with a woman where I wanted her to give me all these things. And when she couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. And there were times where like in my own sense of rejection, like I became verbally abusive and I have pain around that and regret around that. And I've also learned through recovery that we do things 
because we're hurt and because we're hurting. And she did things to me too. I mean, it was two people in a dance. I don't think we really knew how to dance together. And a huge part of my love addiction was not knowing how to leave something that wasn't working. And I stayed and I stayed and I felt like I started to know myself less and less. And that's also a huge part of why I've had to find recovery around sex and love addiction and pornography. Because I realized my whole life I was wanting something outside of me to fix me. This man once told me, he goes, an addict is someone who seeks something physical to fix a problem that's spiritual and emotional. And it has occurred to me that in my recovery, I want there to be this end point, this point at which I feel like I get it. And what I've learned is that there is no getting it. The only thing I can do is experience it. And as I found my program, And when I found people that I could connect with, who understood what I was going through, who taught me how to love myself so that I could properly love someone else, my life was growing and expanding. And I was getting to see all these different areas of my life that I needed to work on, all the different ways that I was seeking things outside of myself to fix me. And I have such fondness for for these years that I've had in my life and feeling on one level like I there's something I'm getting, like I got it, I get it, I get it, I get what this is about. It's about self-improvement and it's about getting better and oh, I can work on my body image, like I know how to do affirmations and tell myself I'm better and I know how to go to therapy and I know how to work on myself. And the one thing that was happening this whole time was I had a family back in Virginia who was struggling. And it was always a struggle for me to realize that I was allowed to move on. I'm allowed to have a good life regardless of what my family is struggling with. And for a long time, I chose to love them from a distance. And I would call home. And I would visit occasionally. And my brother, growing up, he was two years younger than me. And my older brother is six years older. So my little brother, Andrew, we were... One day, my my he was going around talking about his friend. Who is his? He, like he has a friend. This friend, 
And my parents didn't know who he was talking about. They're like, who's this friend? They're like, thought he had an imaginary friend. And he's like, my friend. And then they're like, who's your friend? And he was talking about me. And one thing that was always hard for me growing up was like, as we got older, as puberty hit for him and as his bipolar disorder became stronger in his life, he started to pick up drugs and alcohol to cope. It became harder and harder to have a relationship with him. And it was hard to cope with the ups and the downs. I grew up around violence. He could be very violent at times in his episodes. And so here I was moving through my recovery and through my life and my brother was getting worse and my parents were doing everything that they could to help him. He was in and out of mental institutions, treatment. And one thing that I always resented about my brother was I always felt like everything was always about him. I always thought like my parents had no time for me because they're always dealing with my bipolar brother who was always trying to kill himself and there was just no space for me. I just always felt like there was just no space for me. And I work on that to this day to allow myself to take up space and to believe that I matter. Because at some point, it's not about my parents and it's not about my family. It's about me putting all that aside and owning my life for me. My brother had attempted suicide and a couple weeks later I had gone home for whatever reason and I walked into his room he was always a recluse he would stay in his room a lot and the thing is we always want to fix things with mental illness like we want to fix it let's fix it let's get him on get get us our own medication and fit like take you to the right doctors and do this and do that. We're always doing. We're always trying to fix. And I walked into his room. And I was just like, Andrew, what's going on? And I asked him, I'm always going to be so grateful that I had this moment with him. Because I asked him, I said, Andrew, what do you need? I said, what do you need? Because I, my parents, they did everything they could to help him. And I think the scariest thing is to just ask someone who wants to kill themselves, what do they need? What do they want? And he goes, Matt, I don't need anything. Matt, if I want to go, I want to go. And it's not fair that everybody keeps bringing me back when I don't want to be back. 
and I didn't try to fix it or change it. I just told him that I get it. And I think I started to accept then that he probably wouldn't be around much longer. So I came back to L.A. and live in my life. And then one morning, I got a call from my older brother. Andrew had been in and out of the hospital because he had had some severe seizures from some medications he was on. And so they brought him home from the hospital. He had had a manic episode. That night, he had cleaned up everything in the house. Everything that my parents had ever wanted him to do, he did it all that night. And Chris called my brother, and he he just goes, Matt, Andrew's gone. And the crazy thing about that day is I, uh, that day I went to the gym. I went and I voted in the primaries (laughs) and my brother was this amazing artist and he never sold or gave anyone his artwork and he had given me this one piece of art that he had done and it was always hanging up on my wall, but I never framed it for whatever reason so that day I went and I framed that piece of art we talk so much about a parent losing their child a spouse losing their their significant other And I'm really grateful that it was Chris that called me and told me about Andrew. Because only my brother would know what it was like to lose my brother. And I didn't understand the connection that we have to our siblings until I lost Andrew. It is only with your sibling that you both come from the same womb. On some level, you are always, for me, I was always psychically linked to them. And when he passed away, as difficult as he was, I feel like I lost a soulmate. In 
in recovery from mental illness, we want to understand how we become the way we do. I always want to understand and know, and I can sit there and I can analyze everything. And there's answers I want. And it's like, when can I change and how will I change? And you don't know when or how those answers are going to come. But if there's anything that I have learned, it's that like the answer will come. It takes patience. And when I went home for my brother's funeral, I thought my parents were going to be a mess. And the one thing that people don't want to talk about is that there are no winners. There are no winners with mental illness. You know, I, I used to say my brother committed suicide. And I started doing readings about it and trying to understand suicide and the all of that. All of it. I just wanted to understand it all. And the one thing that made the most sense to me was when someone said, like, you saying someone committed suicide, it, it insinuates as if they had, like, maybe committed a crime. And so for myself, I'm trying not to say that he committed suicide. <laughs> Because he made the best decision he could with where he was and with what he's been given. And I don't think those of us who have suffered with mental illness or who have family or those of us who have family members who have suffered with mental illness really give ourselves enough credit. Because when I went home and I got off the plane, there was almost a sense of relief. Not because, not because they wanted him gone, but because he was at peace. And they didn't have to worry all the time about what he was going to do that night. And I remember going to breakfast with them that day. And there was more energy that was available to me than had ever been available to me before. And it taught me something. It helped me understand, like... Yes, I felt some validation about realizing like, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of energy available to me because they were having to help my brother. And I have days where I have a hard time getting out of bed and I have days where like, I don't understand it and I'm angry and I'm confused. I just came out about of three out of, I just came away from three days of hardly being able to talk to my girlfriend because she's the only one that can get through to me where I feel really safe. 
because some days all I need to do is actually just cry and feel my feelings. And like recovery's given me that. But when I lost my brother, dealing with that kind of grief, it was the first time where I realized that like I can't get myself through this. And I was trying, I was trying to hide it. I was trying to cry just a little bit or cry just enough. But it was in losing my brother I had to be so broken to realize just how much I needed people. But I finally started to learn what it was that I really needed. I didn't need anyone to fix it. But like I did need to show up for it. And I realized that I have to allow myself to be available to my own pain and allow myself to experience it and to be willing to be vulnerable and intimate enough to allow other people to experience it. And I've learned now that for myself, regardless of what area of my life that I am working on my recovery in, the more willing I am to let go of who I think I'm supposed to be and just be right where I'm at. There is so much healing that can take place. When I went home from my brother's funeral, I took my camera home and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I documented my time at home. And for his funeral, we did a memorial with all of his artwork. And I stayed up to like five in the morning doing it because like that was something that I could do for him that he couldn't do when he was alive. And a huge part of my healing and my grieving is about allowing me to be right where I'm at and sharing it and documenting it. The greatest way that I can be of service to someone else is to allow them to see my messiness because it gives them permission to be messy too.
life is messy. It's really messy. And like, there's just, I'm reaching a point where like, I'm tired of trying to find the answers. I just want to be willing to ask more questions and move in the direction of it. I sit here today on one level sad that this is my story and this is what I have to share because it'd be nice if my life didn't have some of these things in it. But the truth is it, it makes for one hell of a story. <laughs> it makes life so much better than black and white. I encourage, I think I can end with this. It would be that I am really messy and it is so okay. Because like, I don't want to miss anything anymore because I'm trying to not be messy. You can't save your face and your ass at the same time. So that's me. Thanks, Matt. That was, that was, that was that vulnerability that I, that I love about you that you, you always bring to our, uh, support group. And, um, thank you. Yeah. We, the being messy is such a, um, we, I don't know about other people, but when I perceive myself as messy, I think the answer is to shame myself, which is so the very last thing you should do in an attempt to love yourself is, uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it feels so natural in the moment, you know, like we're like, we're the boot camp drill instructor and this is how we're going to become emotionally better people but that doesn't that works for getting in physical shape maybe for the army but right it doesn't it doesn't work too well for getting in emotional shape for for our our lives and um so a lot of times i'll say you know what i'm going to take three naps today and i'm not going to shame myself because my body is asking for three naps my yeah. body's asking to finish the pint of of Ben and Jerry's, mm -hmm. and um, the 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 thing that I do try is to say, let's not ignore any emotions that might be going on underneath this. Let's use right. this behavior to look at what I might be unwilling to feel in this moment. Is there some thought? Is there something in my life that is scaring me that feels insurmountable? And almost always the answer is yes. If I'm overeating 
fighting mm-hmm. or napping, right. there's usually something else going on. Something else going on or acting out, you know. There's usually something else going on. Well, and, I had Go ahead. I had someone you know, because my whole thing is like shame is just where I go. I mean, shame is it's it's a part of the cycle of addiction. It yeah. takes us right back into whatever it is that we're using to hurt ourselves. It gives yeah. us reason to hurt ourselves again. And I, I reached a point where I finally was told by someone to every time I had a shaming thought to write it down. I mean, I was walking around with that notebook out all the time. Every shaming thought I had to write down. And it's like we can't stop the thoughts. But it's like if we can acknowledge them from a place of real being present with it, mm-hmm. then we don't have to we don't have to dive into it. Yeah, but step back and view it as if you were watching your best friend. What advice would you give your best friend? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, you need to be a little meaner with yourself because you need to get your shit together. Would you ever tell your best friend that? No, no, you'd say, no. dude, you're doing the best you can. Yeah, you know, go easy on yourself. Yeah, look at all you got going for you. Nobody's yeah. perfect. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for uh for for sharing uh some of that stuff that must have been difficult to go go back into. Um before we take it out with some some fears, I want to make sure I let them know about uh places that they can um watch your YouTube stuff. Yep. Where I'll put a link on our our uh website under this episode, but uh, in case anybody is listening with a pen and a pad of paper. Yes, pull, or, pull or, his pen and paper already. Yes. Yeah. Or notes open on their iPhone. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Meet Matt Shep, M-E-E-T-M-A-T-T-S-H-E-P. And then you can just go into the search engine on YouTube and just type in Meet Matt Shep and I'll pop right up and you can see my videos. I, I documented my first year of grief around my brother. I talk about my eating disorder all sorts of stuff on there Uh, matt was also a part of the in this together festival that i did uh i think it was around thanksgiving of last year wasn't it around there and uh, where i interviewed rice white Uh uh-huh yeah yeah that was a really great festival put on by megan uh, parkansky who is a big supporter of this uh this show and uh and metal uh metal health in general uh, she's been a guest a couple of times on this podcast. Um, let's do some fears and loves. Okay. Um, you start. Let's start do fears. fears. Fears first. Fear that I'm not enough. <laughs> um, I'm afraid that I am incapable of ever making more than the one good financial decision I made 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm afraid that I will never make money doing what I love and that I'll always be waiting tables. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid that I am on a slow self-inflicted physical decline, but it's so incremental. I won't be able to see it until it's horrifying to look at. I'm afraid that I'll, uh, I'm afraid that I'll always be in this much grief about my brother i'm afraid i'm afraid of what it's going to look like the day my pubes go gray (laughs) (laughs) i'm afraid of what that would look like if your (laughs) pubes went gray (laughs) oh i don't want to be that guy in the locker room you know i just remember 
being a, you know, kid and just going, oh, God, what's the point? Walking around with gray pubes. Why even get out of bed? I'm afraid of uh, being morbidly obese again. I'm afraid that I am going to have to work until the day I die and and the last years of it are just going to be an undignified grind. Mm. I'm afraid that more people won't see my work. That's a good one. Uh, I am afraid, and I'm not doing this to manipulate the listener out there. This is a genuine fear <laughs> that, um, because we've been just having a, a little, we have ebbs and flows in listenership, and we've been on a uh, um, little bit of a down downturn in terms of uh, downloads and um i'm and so usually the monthly uh donor uh sign up goes with that and i'm afraid that i that this will just always continue and then i will have not planned for this not being my full-time job and I won't know what to do, and I'll be panicked and depressed and some other emotions that just feels mm-hmm. uh, i can't put I can't put it into words it's more of just a uh, i just i think about it for like a second right and then I brush it right brush it away right which is probably better than sitting and dwelling on it because I'm, I, right you know. I work on the podcast. I do right. what I can. Yeah. Um, but that's one that that's kind of a recurring, recurring one. Just don't shame yourself. Don't shame yourself. <laughs> I try not to, but there's so many things. There's not a budget to hire other people. And there's mm. so many things that I want to do to expand it. And I do sometimes shame myself because I'm like, well, you should be doing this to get more listeners and you should be doing that. And it's like, but I also want to have a life outside of this. I want to be able to two nights a week, be able to watch Netflix or something, yeah. you know, and, yeah. um, um, what's your, what's your next fear? Um, I'm, a, uh, my fear is. Uh, that my relationship is too good to be true. My current relationship, which I've worked my ass off for, but fear that it's too good to be true. I'm afraid that any thought that I have that I'm capable of intimacy is just going to one day go off up in a puff of smoke. And I will realize I'm as that I'm, damaged beyond functionability in a one-on-one intimate relationship mm. let's do let's do some let's some loves let's do some good stuff some loves 
on that note, I'll be like, I love my girlfriend. <laughs> I, give her, I love you, Jessica. I'll give her a shout out. Uh, I hate you, Jessica. I just had to mix that up. <laughs> I've never met Jessica, and I don't care to. <laughs> I, um... I love when an unfrosted Pop-Tart is toasted just on the verge of being too burnt, but it just winds up being delicious. You know, like a marshmallow mm -hmm. when yeah, there's yeah, that yeah. like three second window yeah. between awesome and you fucked it up. Yeah. And there's that same window for unfrosted Pop-Tarts. And I don't even want to hear about frosted Pop-Tarts. Anybody out there that likes them. I cast you to hell with ankle weights on. What? Those are unfrosted. Okay. Yeah. You, know, you like he's, unfrosted? Okay. Unfrosted. That's he's, he's looking at uh, five boxes of pop tarts. Well, there was a. It was a uh, an, a case that was sent by uh, a super nice uh, listener wow. and monthly donor, uh, Tr. Giving you a shout out, and uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Nice, and, uh, because you can't get blueberry here. Oh, so he lives. Uh, he lives in North, I believe. I want to say Wyoming. Uh, no, 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 no. He lives in um, um, the Dakotas. I think he's South Dakota or North Dakota, South Dakota. That's a loyal listener. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, he's a great guy. I like that. Great guy. I. I love that moment when like you've stayed up really late at night and you've like probably watched way too much Netflix and you know you need to go to sleep, but you're mm -hmm. fighting it anyways. And there's like that moment where you're like, I won because <laughs> you're still awake. And, and, and you got through the, you feel the last a, episode. You got through the last episode, but then like you're so tired, but you're, you're in a, it, it's a, it's like you're high, but you're not, but yeah. you're like, and then you just, you don't know what happened because you fell asleep. Yeah. You just. I like, I like that moment. You're in that twilight. Yeah, that, that twilight. Net, that Netflix coma. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did I just watch the last episode, or am I on the first episode? I think I need to go to bed. Yeah. Um. I think I've done this one before, but I love just the feeling when a great HBO show, or other shows, um, but mostly they're the shows that are on HBO, when it fades to black at the end of a show mm. and you're like, that couldn't have been any more perfect. I like that. That was like a movie. Like I get that one with game of Thrones. Um, I, uh, get that with the wire. Um, I get it with mad men, AMC. And, uh, if you haven't seen it yet on Hulu, a handmaid's tale is mm. so fucking good. And so dark. It's, is it good? Ugh. It's incredible. I have to get on that. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, give me another one. Okay, I'm gonna do it. I'll do. This will be a little shameless plug. Okay. I I love everyone that subscribes to my YouTube channel. Well, you're about to get you get some more love because I think that some people are going to subscribe after uh, after hearing this episode. Um, but it, honestly, though, it's I have loved getting to know the people who mm. watch my content and who share what they're going through and it's it's cool it's cool and when you get to do something in person and meet uh the people that subscribe or listen it's it's even better to get to give them a hug in person and you know look in their eyes and see uh 
you know, what otherwise would yeah. just be an email and you yeah. can see that, you know, there's that connection that somebody that you're what you're doing means something to, yeah. to yeah. somebody and that they're able to see that them sharing that means mm-hmm. something to you. Mm-hmm. Um, um Any other pastries you love? <laughs> um, I love Ben and Jerry's Americone Dream. It's just the most perfect. Um, it's the one I keep going back to. It's 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 what so is it? good. Americone Dream. It has Stephen Colbert on the oh. front of it, and uh, yeah, nice. It's good. It's a good one. I like how I'm sharing that with uh, somebody in the in the food program. Mm. <laughs> um you know it's like around mental health stuff it's like it's weird when you say like i'm crazy but like you're not crazy like this is social Mm -hmm. but you know what man i love being fucking crazy yeah i i'm i'm realizing it's like it makes me more interesting like Mm -hmm. i i'm loving just being more who i am and being like and and I think it's who is using the word crazy, you know. It it reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, people in minority communities right. will have a word that that they can call themselves, but somebody outside of the community right. using it, it's it's offensive. And I feel the same way about the word crazy. Like when I hear somebody, uh, you know, on in the news media, you know, talking about somebody and saying, "Oh, that person's, you know, they're crazy," and uh, right. that offends me, but within our own mm-hmm. thing i like being able to use the word crazy yeah i do it's because you know what it's just i've just learned i'm learning to just i think that's the number one thing to get rid of shame it's like you got to embrace it mm-hmm. you got to embrace it if you can embrace it and love it for what it is it's so much more interesting yeah I'm going to just, I love what you're doing here. Thanks. I really love what you're doing here. Because I believe people are hearing you who may not have found some of it otherwise. I, I love being able to do it. It's um, It helps me a lot. It really helps me a lot. It brings a lot of meaning and uh and purpose into my life uh otherwise i'm sitting in my recliner staring out the window wondering uh who, how i can get a billion dollars <laughs> <laughs> um let's do a couple more each okay i love the distinct uh unmistakable tone of uh, brian may's guitar uh, the guitarist from Queen. When you hear it, you absolutely know it's him. You could hear two notes, and you're like, "Oh, that's Brian May." Mm. I love viral videos. I can sit yeah. around and watch viral videos all day. I'm like a year late on it, but I love the uh, "Damn Daniel." <laughs> like a year late, I just saw it the other day. It happened yeah. like a year ago. I I love viral videos, watching yeah. them all the time. Especially when it's something that you're like, oh, that was magical. Yeah. What just happened. Yeah. That was magical. Because they're moments. Yeah. Like you can't change. Oh, yeah. I love it. I used to get to, to experience when uh, Ivy, one of my dogs, was a puppy. We would go to the dog park, and I had just gotten a, 
a nice digital camera with a good wide angle lens. Mm -hmm. And I would, uh, get down on the ground in the dog park and I would take pictures of dogs at their level as they played with a really fast shutter speed. And I would take maybe 400 in an afternoon. Then I'd pull the card out, put it in my computer and look through it. And just by the nature of taking that many photographs, Uh you would get two or three that were really cool Uh from that day that just, you know, it's just in that instant. If you had had it five milliseconds later, it wouldn't be the same shot. Uh And I love... I love those moments oh, love where that. it's it's just uh, it's there and it's gone, but you happen to have the shutter open right yeah. at that right moment. Um, give me one more, and then I'll do one more. I, you know, I I love all the dogs and kids that come into the restaurant I work at. I don't have a dog and I don't have kids. So like my Instagram is filled with all of their pictures of these little dogs from my job. Cause we have an outdoor patio. I'm like a dog freak and I love, I love little kids. What, uh, can you share what restaurant you work at? Oh, I no, no, I probably should. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, I love, I love, Finding somebody on YouTube showing how to play a song on guitar that I have racked my brain my whole life trying to figure out. And then a half hour later, I'm playing it and I'm like, holy fuck, I can't believe I learned how to play this lick. Yeah. Oh, and one more YouTube thing I love. uh, I I believe her name is... uh, is it Gabrielle Quivedo? She's uh, she's a uh, acoustic guitarist, and she does um, these arrangements where she'll do a song where she's playing both the melody and the harmonies together. Ooh. And uh, she can't be more than like fucking twenty two years old, uh-huh. and she's just amazing, mm. just amazing. And uh, I love when she comes out with a new song on uh, on YouTube. And you're like, how is she going to pull this off? Oh, my God. She just pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming in and uh, thank you. and sharing your life with us and being my friend and being such a good part of our, uh, our Wednesday night meeting. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Love you, buddy. Love you, too. What a sweet, sweet man. Um, I'm going to uh, ask him if he would be comfortable sharing some pictures of his... Uh, his brother's artwork with uh, with the monthly donors, and maybe I could put some of those um, pictures of that up on Patreon. But uh, I emailed him, and I haven't heard back yet. So, um, yeah, if he's if he's uh, cool with that, I will do that. Oh, before I forget, this episode will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and uh, helping out the show. Um, there's something else I wanted to tell you. I can't remember what it was about. Uh, oh, um, I'd love some feedback from you guys about whether or not you enjoyed having a guest um, just tell their story uninterrupted uh, or if you prefer uh, the conversational style uh, or if you just don't care for the show in general. But if you've listened this far, and you don't care for the show in general? Well, you're just an asshole. And then I don't care what you think. 
How's that? How's that new people to the show that I just turned off? Hey, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Because finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. Let's do it a third time. For free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment that was filled out by Backpage Flyer. And uh, he writes, At this very moment, the brass from our Toronto headquarters is having a meeting here at the local base. I hear them in there making uh, making bad decisions that will keep me poor, but allow them to afford $800,000 homes. And part of me wants to burst into their little giggle fest and say, you know, I fucked a hooker over in that corner one night because you folks don't pay me enough to afford a real relationship. If you do decide to do that, please, please have somebody film you telling them that. Uh, oh, man, would that go viral. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Katrina, and she writes, about a month after I started taking Zoloft, I felt it quote, kicking in. I was able to make practical and positive changes in my life, settled my credit card debt. Uh, having the mental energy to do things many people may take for granted was a huge relief. Uh, and I, uh, oh, any comments to make the podcast better? More guests from the treatment side of things, perhaps those who work with sex offenders. We, we have done a, a couple of episodes of people. Uh, one that springs to mind is David uh, Hirohama. Um, he worked uh, with sex offenders, and I think there's been a few more, but if you Google, or not Google, um, go to our website and type in our search box any keywords of things that you're looking for. Um, if it's a phrase, I believe uh, putting it in quotes will, uh, will work as well. Um, you may find some things. Uh, it's a lot easier than me uh, answering every question and then going and doing the search myself and then copying a resentment at you and then realizing I actually resent myself because I'm a people pleaser and I don't have boundaries. So let's not put me through that. And uh, the thing that I wanted to say about this as well um, is I'm not, you know, they mentioned Zoloft. I am not pro or anti-med. I think there are a lot of people who are overprescribed and I think there are a lot of people who need meds that, that don't take them. Um, I happen to be somebody that needs them. I've tried to go off them many, many times, and the results have been disastrous. Um, and so I accept the fact that uh, I need them. I don't like it, 
but uh, they are saving uh, my life, among other things, um, support groups and uh, blah, 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 blah. This is from a survey that we retired, um, and it was the Mental Illness Happy Hour basic, basic Survey. And I just went back in there, and there was a question that I asked, uh, if there is a God, what would you say to God? And I just find it to be a question that really drills down into what people are really feeling at that moment. And um, so I'm just going to read you about, uh, I don't know, about 20 different responses from different, from different people to the question. Um, this person says, where the fuck were you when I was five? Why do you keep throwing shit at me? Every time I overcome something incredibly difficult, another thing gets piled on. I want to know why exactly you are standing over me, waiting to kick me down when I start getting up. Fix me and then leave me alone. Also, if this is a test, you can keep it. Another person writes, give me strength and wisdom. That's all I think you can really ask for. Another person writes, help. I need to feel loved. Somebody else writes, hey, I want to help you edit the God reel. <laughs> Another person just says, hi. And it's not even capital letters. Small, small cap high. I guess that's a casual high to uh, to God. Uh, another person writes, they say we are given what we can handle. How the hell can you think I can handle all of this? I can't. Uh, another person, couldn't you have just said be nice without all the rules people take wrong? Another person, why did you take my brothers at such a young age? Oh, my brothers at such young ages. Couldn't you have shown yourself to me? Another person asks, why do fucked up people have children? Is it just a game to them, to you? Uh, I think about that one a lot. I think about that one a lot. It's, it's like the more you get help for yourself and start getting mentally and emotionally and uh, perhaps even spiritually healthy, the more you see how much unhealthiness there is around you and how many people of those people are parents, adults, really children in adults' bodies. And it's so hard to watch. It's so hard to watch. Um, this person writes, nice sandals. Nothing says I will lead you like a nice pair of flip-flops. Uh, I don't know if there is a, a God, what God's sense of humor is, but um, I hope... I hope God likes sarcasm because <laughs> that was a pretty fucking. Uh, now the person writes, come on, really? Do a little better. Look at this place. Yeah, sure, nature is beautiful, love and all that, yada, yada. But look at all that war, starvation, disease and destruction. How long have you been sleeping on the job? Also, could you please clear up all this confusion between which is the quote right religion? Because there's been an awful lot of deaths in your name. Another person writes, why did he make me this way? Why did you take my dad? Why won't you help me? What is my purpose? 
Someone else writes, I know you love me, and I try to remember that means I am worthy of love, but I wish you would make it a little easier. I wish you would take me with you. Wow. This person writes, I've seen sun setting over Big Sur while driving along the Pacific Coast Highway. I know how beautiful this world can be, so I don't understand why you are for man's inhumanity towards his fellow man. Somebody else writes, I wouldn't be able to speak the enormity and depth of my anger and resentment towards whoever or whatever created human life and forced me into existence would cause me to lock up and probably have a coronary on the spot. If I could speak, I would ask, wild-eyed and nearly convulsing with rage, to be eliminated from this disgusting, despicable existence. Wow. I am I am so sorry um, that you are in so much pain. And uh, a lot of people clearly uh, from from this um, are feeling really, really overwhelmed and alone. And I say it all the time on the podcast, but I think it bears repeating here is that you are not alone. And um, I know it's easy for it to feel that way, but human connection um, can make a an unbearable situation a little more bearable sometimes. It may not, not solve a problem, but um, for me, it has brought me the comfort and the connection that has, has given me the strength to get through the darkest uh, times in my life. And I'm glad that I was humbled to the point of asking for help because I would be dead. And I'm glad I'm not dead. I'm glad I'm here. Um, oh, you got a little heavy there. Uh, somebody else writes, where did I go wrong? Another person writes, come dance with me or let's have sex now. Oh, look at you hitting on God. Getting all up in God's business. Uh, someone writes, in the past I would have written an essay on this question, but now I can't really even comment. Somebody else writes, I know that you love me, but I need to hear you say it to me in person. Why did you create me? Are you disappointed in me? And then the last one, someone writes, thank you for a wonderful childhood. Sorry, I hate myself. Thank you guys for filling those out. Those are uh, those are pretty profound. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment for those of you that are new to the podcast. It's something that uh, was awful when it happened, but in hindsight, there's something kind of sickly funny about it or uh, with the passage of time, uh, beautiful in, in hindsight. Uh, and this is filled out by Artie Mama Clinging On. And she writes, when picking up my daughter from mental hospital after her second stay and second suicide attempt, she cried with gratitude for the help the staff had given her. She wanted to thank everyone who had ever helped her, promising to write letters to them all. The hospital had given her the technique of doing jumping jacks to help combat her anxiety. And when we pulled up outside her flat, she felt anxious to see her flatmates. So right there in the middle of the street, she did 25 jumping jacks, and seeing her laughing and ignoring the passersby, I wanted 
also to cry with gratitude that she was so very alive. She's so beautiful and just doesn't know it, although I tell her all the time she thinks I'm biased because I'm her mom. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, man. I I never... I never get tired of reading the surveys you guys fill out of just these little slivers of your lives where there's just the sun comes poking through. And um, a friend of mine was in a really bad place this this, uh, last week and a half, and he does physical labor uh, for his job. And he's self-employed. He does, you know, odds uh, you know, handyman, construction, here and there, a variety of things, but his back was killing him. And he was really was weighing heavily on his mind because uh, his money situation was tight. And he uh, went to a doctor, kind of an alternative uh, form of therapeutic help, and it worked. And the next day, just seeing my old friend back because he's just a really positive person full of love and um, it's just so nice when you see the lights come back on in somebody else it's um, sometimes I almost think it's better than feeling it ourselves but uh, being a little bit on the selfish side I don't want to be dishonest so I'm not going to go that far Uh I hope you heard something that moved you, inspired you, enlightened you, maybe pissed you off, uh, maybe put our relationship on the rocks temporarily. Oh, maybe there, there, there's going to be a, a mediator needed to bring you and I back together over whatever it was that I said that has uh, caused you distress. Or maybe I blow it off and I say, you know what? I can I can afford one less listener. Fuck that person. I don't know. This is intriguing. We might have to make a reality show for this. <laughs> Welcome to anybody who's new. And no matter what you're going through, you're never as alone as you think you are. And help is usually around the corner if we're willing to Take that scary first step and reach out for help. And I'm glad I did because then I get to have this incredible life doing this show that I love and getting to interact with all of you. So thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.